Listener Production. Teela Reeds is a name that you should know. A proud Wiradjuri and Wild One woman, lawyer, storyteller. Teela was also involved in the constitutional dialogue process that culminated in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. As many of you will know, the Prime Minister has foreshadowed a referendum on the question of a First Nations voice to Parliament, a key component of the Statement from the Heart. One day soon, we will all be called upon to vote on this critical question. If you want to understand more about it, then Teela Reid has got the goods. Teela and my conversation covers kinship, oral history, colonisation, healing, treaty and more. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is my chat with Teela Reid. Teela Reid, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Yama, thanks for having me, Jamila. It's so lovely to have you here and I want to begin by acknowledging that I am coming to you today from Wurundjeri country, beautiful Wurundjeri country, part of the Kulin Nation here in Nam, where it is pelting down with rain. I want to acknowledge that I am on land that over which sovereignty has never been ceded. And where are you coming to us from today, my friend? So I am coming to you from the beautiful lands and waters of the Bidjigal people. And I acknowledge that First Nations sovereignty has never been ceded across this continent. Tila, I want to start with your experience of the school system. What were you told at school about the history of Australia's First People? Because I know what I was told and it doesn't really reconcile with what I know now. But I imagine for you, it wouldn't have reconciled with the stories and knowledge that you had as a, as a kid. Yeah, look, I, my context is this. I went to school in a little country town. Um, so, in fact, for me, it wasn't always what I was told. You know, I recall being at school and we were learning, you know, that only white people defended Australia at war. Mm. Those kinds of things really unsettled me because the narrative that we were being taught in the education system was very different to what I was being told at home about the truth of, you know, First Nations people being sent to the front line. Um, But not just to the front line to defend Australia, for example, but also the wars that went on here, on this country, in the frontier. And so I started to really question as a result of feeling so unsettled about these colliding narratives, what could I do to to then bring a voice to these issues and what? how can we make this system better for the next generation? I always had a sense of this is not right. Yeah. I know you said elsewhere that you grew up as part of a First Nations matriarchal kinship. Can you help our audience to understand what that means and tell us a little bit more about what childhood was like outside of school? Yeah, so I've written and spoken a lot about the kinship system that I grew up in, which uh, for me was really, I guess, about the role of women and the authority 
of women and matriarchal kinships. And it's not just about women when I speak about this. So much of my understanding about the role of women comes from really significant men in my life, like my grandfather, who, you know, spoke to me, you know, even just around the campfire about words like yinjimara and respect and to live, I guess, in almost, I guess the best way to explain it is that this is a kinship system that's circular and it's very different to white patriarchy that's very hierarchical. And so it's really a system of decision, lots of decisions about the family unit or the community um, are made with the authority of women. And women have a central role in sustaining that kinship. I've written before about my grandmother being, you know, kind of like a a medicine woman who it was natural to me that she would go out and get bush medicine if we got a rash or, you know, and we would have it in different ways. And so those kinds of roles, I guess, and the moral authority that comes with women making decisions in our kinship is what I describe as a matriarchal kinship. Does the feminist movement resonate with you when you think about that matriarchal kinship? And and I suppose by that, what I'm really asking is, is that something you feel a part of? Um, I don't refer to myself as a feminist. It's not that I don't believe in the feminist movement or, or what, you know, the progress that has been achieved. I think that, however, it has been, and I think history is proof of this, that at times feminism has basically made progress to the detriment of First Nations women or women of colour. And so while I can see on the one hand why people relate to it, it's simply not a standpoint that I live by. Um, I prefer to use matriarchal kinships um, because I think as well often what you see in feminist movements, particularly Western feminist movements, is people trying to rise to the top or break the glass ceiling or, you know, and to me that is more about perpetuating capitalism and perpetuating these structures that exist and the structures, while there might be more women at the top, doesn't necessarily mean that those decisions are made in the interests of, for example, First Nations women. So there's probably a lot more to explore, I guess, philosophically about that, but it's I, I don't see myself as a feminist. Yeah. And look, a lot of that, I think, resonates with me to the extent that often feminist conversations, particularly those that are prosecuted in the media, are about women at the top, right? They're about women on boards and women CEOs. And I'm not saying that's not important, but I'm much more concerned and I'd much rather we were concentrating on our efforts on women who don't have access to work or women who are severely underpaid or in insecure work or who are struggling to feed themselves and their families and whose healthcare isn't being provided, right? I mean, Australia is such an interesting example because if you look um, over the past couple of years and the way in which I guess as a society, society does value white women's voices more. And if one example of this is particularly in First Nations communities, lots of First Nations women have spoken about violence or sexual violence or, you know, things that I guess this country was built off the backs of many First Nations women who did labour for free or other things that we 
seem to have swept under the carpet. Suddenly, there's lots of traction around the world with the Me Too movement and other women who have spoken out about these issues. And now it's all in the national agenda when, in fact, these were issues that I've spoken about in First Nations communities for a long time. And so it does irk me a bit when we know in the First Nations communities and we set priorities for our communities that often it is a harder battle to have those views, I guess, heard. But more to the point of feminism, I think it lacks as well in this sense is I don't even necessarily think that intersectionality goes far enough when you're talking about race and gender, for example. I guess there's been lots of work in our communities, the First Nations communities by Arnie Jackie Huggins um, and Arnie Eileen Morton Robinson, who really, I guess, speak from a sovereign First Nations women's standpoint. And I think once that conversation starts to gain traction in mainstream feminism, then I think that's when the real kind of growth around a better understanding of matriarchal kinships and what that can do. Because so much of understanding about matriarchal kinships is about also being prepared to dismantle white patriarchal systems. And I think feminists need to ask themselves that. Is that something that they're prepared to do or are they just upholding structures that continue to oppress First Nations women and women of colour? And what you say about whose voices get listened to and whose voices get, I suppose, platformed by the media and are the ones that tend to instigate legislative change or regulatory change, you know, we've seen similar things overseas, right? We've seen that in the States with the Me Too movement in the first place. You had a black woman called Tarana Burke who first used that phrase and was rallying a movement around it, but we kind of didn't pay attention in the global media for another few years until rich white ladies on red carpets started talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. That's when we start to really, I guess, look a bit deeper and analyse, well, how are these structures that feminism has actually upheld perpetuate I think the distance between privilege and oppressed people because, as we know in Australia, actually not all voices are equal and not all are received with the same, I guess, response or respect. I think that's why I have been highly critical of feminist movements um, based on really my lived experience. So much of this to me is about stories and while we all get to tell our stories not all of our stories get listened to storytelling is something you've also spoken and written about a lot including the role of storytelling in enabling healing for first nations people can you tell me a little bit about the link for you between honest conversations storytelling and healing and how those three sit together well i think particularly Thinking of stories from my lived experience and a First Nations point of view is that stories give us a sense of belonging. Mm. They enable us to create narratives about our lived experience and our human experiences. You know, you can unpack stories a bit more and I think on a high level you can think about it on this sense that so much of First Nations sovereignty and understanding and systems of government 
governance, I should say, and laws has been passed down through storytelling. So some of, you know, the most important lessons I learned in my life was sitting around the campfire with elders and having those stories told to me about the land and who we are and that sense of cultural obligation. And what we've seen over time, I think, in Australia is through invasion and colonisation, it's that, in fact, we have now witnessed colonisers carve out narratives about us that Mm. are at odds with our own oral histories. And that then I think brings another layer about, you know, well, this kind of contest between what's the value you place on oral stories and that's been told and passed down through generations as opposed to something like, you know, what anthropologists have written about us or what Mm. um, politicians say about us in reports that they commission. And what you start to see is, I think, a dishonest portrayal of the stories of who we are as First Nations people, which is often a deficit. So more to your question, I think that when we are able to better value what we do in First Nations communities is this understanding of oral stories and really place value on that. We then start to pivot on whose stories we value. For example, in our communities, it's elders and First Nations matriarchs. And those are voices that are simply not heard. I think social media has another kind of presents another challenge because it provides platforms to people who aren't necessarily got the authority to tell stories. And so we're missing a lot of those, I wouldn't say traditional ways, but it's just the essence of who we are as First Nations. We're the original storytellers. And I think that's such a gift to the world. And I think when Australia starts to understand that, what you will start to see is that within these stories, it's not just about the narratives, it's about our sovereignty and our relationship with each other and our relationship with the land. And I think white Australia has a lot to learn from that. The Uluru Statement was an ultimate example of those stories, those narratives becoming a statement of sovereignty and an invitation to the rest of this country to work alongside First Nations people towards some kind of reckoning with the true history of this country. But that was a story that wasn't met with the respect um, or the generosity with which it was delivered, let's say. How did that initial government response impact you at a personal level? What was your response? Look, I think at the time was really heartbreaking having known the the hard work that elders had done in this process. And it was a process in terms of the dialogues and the conversations that wasn't taken lightly, you know, particularly in terms of um, the fact that yet again First Nations peoples had been sanctioned to the table to do the hard work and the hard work was presented and then it was dismissed. And in those conversations, there were lots of different ways in which I would say First Nations peoples expressed their sovereignty and their stories. Like, for example, one thing that people don't talk about is 
the actual statement itself, if you you if you know listeners can imagine that statement and the artwork around it, well, the artwork around it is the Jukapa law. This is a law that is told throughout Central Australia about their laws and their their sense of creation, and that's told through, as you see in the Uluru Statement, art but it's told in other ways as well. No one talks about that. Mm. But I think, you know, it was heartbreaking and have an, an understanding of the work, not just the statement either. There's been many petitions in the past. There's been the Barunga statement, the Yakala Bark petitions. There's been the Larakia petition, the Kirribilli statement. And you, the list goes on with statements that First Nations people have presented to governments. In terms of... This particular point in time, despite, I guess, the heartbreak of that dismissal, it just became very clear to me that I have a cultural obligation to step up and, you know, engage in this conversation and advocacy based on my lived experience, based on the hard work that I saw being done. We simply cannot take no for an answer. So in terms of that you know, what we've witnessed now is even one government's dismissal. We went out and continued to do the work and now we're galvanising a movement of the Australian people to ensure that we enshrine a First Nations voice in the Constitution and a Makarata Commission to enable communities and truth-telling. And I think just to answer your question as well, this kind of advocacy that I engage in, while it can be difficult and tiring, it's important for me to always remember that my ancestors had it a lot harder. And I think that's what continues to give me hope. It's that I have no complaints, you know, in terms of how difficult this work is because those before me who have whose shoulders I stand on did it much harder to give me the opportunities I have now. First Nations law has survived, as you've already spoken about, despite invasion, despite colonisation. You practice as a lawyer now and uh, you're a practitioner in residence at Sydney University. What does the survival of First Nations laws mean for those who are practising as lawyers in Australia today when they're practising according to a very different system of norms and rules? Yeah, it's such a great question um, because what meaning you give to what we would say in the legal world, pluralistic kind of jurisprudence, if you think about laws as layers, that these things can coexist and they absolutely do coexist. It's just a matter of how we want to recognise them coexisting and that First Nations law is not a threat to Western understandings of law. But I guess the most lay way I could kind of distill it is that, and this is if you even look at other parts of the world, like I just got back from a law school in Turtle Island that is doing really incredible uh, work in their legal education around, you know, it's the only program in the world that teaches a Juris Doctor in Indigenous law. Yeah, wow. So there's students 
have these incredible opportunities to one, learn the Western system and two, go out into communities and engage with Indigenous law and legal processes. We are really so far from that phase, I think, in legal education in Australia that I think we have to do better at being able to, you know, because Australia is, you have to think about this, Australia is built on the presumption that First Nations people were to die out, not only die out, but there has been systemic erasure of our laws. Yeah. We shouldn't underestimate, well, we certainly don't as lawyers, I think, underestimate how powerful the law can be because it's something that regulates society. But I'll try and explain it in this way, especially in Australia, and some people might be able to relate to this. Australia is a country that, you know, it has a constitution. It became a federation in 1901. That rule book is written. But around the world, some countries have unwritten constitutions. They're not, you know, hard law, kind of like what we have here. So what you'll see is that actually when it comes to First Nations law, we need to begin to value the fact that sometimes these aren't always written, but who in the community has authority to pass down these stories and these laws? And how can we engage better with legal education and legal systems to, I guess, emphasise that First Nations law and Western law can coexist? I think the problem, though, is this mentality around white systems it's that they're more superior. They come with more authority. That approach perpetuates, I think, the diminishing of First Nations laws. And Australia really has to have, I think, a serious conversation about where does um, first law fit within this coexisting narratives. And that's something that the Uluru Statement talks about. It talks about the coexistence of these systems. And I think that is an amazing gift to the world in terms of if you think about your children and the next generation, there is a real opportunity here to raise them in a world where they value both systems. We just have to get it right at referendum as a starting point to vote yes for a First Nations voice to uplift these incredible stories across the country. Tila Reid, that feels like the most perfect and powerful note to end on. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your lived experience and your expertise with me and with everyone else today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. That's it for my conversation with Teela Reid. If you want to make sure you are not missing the contribution that she is making to our national debate, then you should follow her on Instagram. She's at Teela Reid. Don't go away. The Weekend List is coming up next. It's weekend list time. Bron is here and she's going to save me from myself because Bron, I feel like all I've been doing is traveling lately and traveling for work, which means I get on the plane and I madly type. It's all very grim and I need something to watch or something to read or something to escape from all of this. Well, in terms of something to read, my first recommendation uh, literally blew my mind when I learned about it just a few days ago. I don't know if this is common knowledge, but it seriously took me by surprise. But apparently you can borrow audio books from your local library. Did you know this? I remember as a kid, like my mum would borrow like 
CD audiobooks, but I'm guessing that's not what you're talking about. No, so you can, uh, well, I don't know if this is every library. You can look into your local library and see what's on offer. But for my local library, you can get an app, become a member online. I didn't have to visit anywhere. I just did it all from the comfort of my own home. Yes. Most libraries, I feel like, will have something similar. But yeah, it just totally blew my mind. Very cheap way to do it. You don't have to buy a subscription. It's totally free. And yeah, it was just, yeah, you can support your local library. I am massively into this. I love the idea that I can support my local library without having to go to the library. (laughs) Exactly. Massively into it. I uh, want to recommend something that is very much on the theme of books and reading. I want to recommend a new play that is opening at the Arts Centre in Melbourne called We Are All Amelia. It's a fascinating play that is based on the final monologue from a play called Amelia. Amelia was the suspected dark lady who apparently enchanted Shakespeare 400 years ago. So we're talking very old school, very white guy kind of view of the world when we're talking about this text. But it has been remade and it has been remade in a way that is hysterically funny, super witty, and it's all about reclaiming the life of a truly exceptional woman. The play has been described by critics as electrifying and I can't think of a better word to get me into a theatre and get super exciting because I don't want to sit in a theatre quietly, well-behaved and sort of clap politely at the end. I want something that is a call to arms that makes you feel passionate and makes you laugh and makes you want to sing at the end of it. There's a cast of 13 women and non-binary performers, most of people of colour, who have brought this to life. It's starting in Melbourne. It will be at the Arts Centre and I understand it's going to be trekking all over the country. So you should all stay tuned for it. My second recommendation is Drink Masters on Netflix. So it's a competition show where these like world-class mixologists are competing for $100,000. I saw someone online describe it as a boozy version of Bake Off, which I know you love Bake Off, Jam. I love this already. (laughs) So I'm a big lover of cocktails and it is just like people taking it to the next level. They're foaming stuff, they're smoking stuff, they're using all these like crazy techniques to make these, you know, amazing cocktails. Um, You know, I shudder to kind of think about how much these drinks would cost on a night out, but it's fun to watch them (laughs) make it. Um, And yeah, it's just fun to see people getting creative with it. It's really just, yeah, an easy light show. The bar is open and daddy's thirsty. (laughs) (laughs) In this competition, push your skills to the limit to create masterpieces of liquid art. Bartenders today are taking a much more culinary approach to cocktails. I have a lot of wild ingredients. So well done, so awesome. This is the future of mixology. I love that. It's like they've taken the wholesome baking show and made it less wholesome by putting alcohol into it. Exactly. There are a few where they go non-alcoholic, which is like becoming very popular um, at the moment, like non-alcoholic gins and things like that. But yeah, mostly a boozy version of Bake Off. Sounds super fun. Folks, I want to return to the theme of our episode earlier with my final recommendation. I want to recommend that you all go and read the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And I can imagine there's a bunch of you sitting there right now going, that sounds very worthy and important, but also like homework. It's not like homework. The statement is actually really short and simple. It will take you less than five minutes to read it. It is the work, of course, of more than 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander delegates who all came together in May of 2017 to put their signatures on this historic statement that was signed 
in the shadows of Uluru in the Northern Territory. It is quite incredible and it is beautifully written. It's almost like poetry. And the ask of the Australian Parliament and the Australian people is really simple. Again, it'll take you less than five minutes to read it and it will stay with you well, well, well beyond that. And it will mean that you go into the referendum in the coming years with a whole lot more knowledge and understanding than perhaps you've got right now. That's it for the weekend briefing. Thank you so much for giving us your company for what was a really special episode with Teela Reid. If you enjoyed listening to Teela, then I really recommend you go back to the briefing feed and have a look at some previous weekend briefing episodes. While you're there, make sure that you hit the follow in the listener app or you subscribe or follow us wherever you're getting your podcasts. If you want to leave us a lovely rating and review, we will not object to that either. We will be back in your feed bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.